0: So we're in this series called Battles Before Blessings, and we're walking through the Old Testament book of Joshua. And what we've discovered is this, God offers his people all these promises. He has these blessings in store for us, but to take hold of those promises, we have to fight for them. You know, Jesus promised us abundant life, but even that is not automatic. There's usually a battle to attain God's blessings. Now, what you have in the Old Testament book of Joshua is Israel's movement to the promised land. And here's how this applies to us today. Last week, we talked about the fact that there's a process that God employs in a believer's life. It's always deliverance, development, and destiny. There are three movements in a believer's life. First, deliverance. You know They were delivered from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. That's like our salvation when we are delivered from spiritual bondage. And then there was development, the wilderness. You know, they went through the trials and tests of the wilderness to learn to trust God. And this is similar to the trials we face in our spiritual walk. And then finally, there's destiny, the promised land, the place God wanted them to go for his purposes. This is where they would experience the promises, the blessings of God. And that's similar to when we experience the abundant life Jesus talked about. So what they experienced has a parallel in our spiritual lives. First, there's deliverance from spiritual bondage, then spiritual development through the tests and trials of life. And then we arrive at the place of destiny, God's purpose for our lives. Now, keep in mind, the promised land is not heaven. Remember, they're getting ready to fight. They're getting ready to run into the Canaanites, Jebusites, Hittites, and Amorites, the enemies of God. There are no enemies of God in heaven. So we're talking about fulfilling God's purposes here on earth. So last week, we began in chapter one, where God is telling them to go into the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? What keeps you in the wilderness? Well, what keeps you in the wilderness is when you've not yet learned to walk by faith. You're stuck in the routine. They had 40 years of going around in circles in the wilderness. And the only reason they were there was because they refused to trust God. So growing in faith is the way to exit the wilderness. And now we have come to the next generation. And it's time to cross over and claim God's promises. So we'll pick up the story in just a second here in chapter 2, where we encounter a lady named Rahab, who gets a whole chapter to herself. She's living among the Canaanites in a city called Jericho. And this is the first major city that Israel comes to when they're preparing to cross over the Jordan. Well, Joshua sends two spies to go and search out the land, to check things out and see how they ought to militarily approach defeating this city that God said belonged to them. And according to the end of verse one, they come to the red light district because they come to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. They're coming to spy not to be served. Okay. Let's just make that perfectly clear up front here. They viewed this as an inconspicuous place to go. I mean, this is a place where men would go and they could kind of hide in the mix of that particular environment. Now, first of all, as outsiders or strangers to go to the house of a prostitute is a pretty good idea because there are people coming and going all the time and two strange men in the neighborhood wouldn't look suspicious. And second, If you want to gather information, you go to a place where information gets exchanged all the time. I've heard that in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam conflict, and I'm not making this up, army intelligence agents believed the prostitutes knew more about when the American troops were coming in and going out than the troops themselves. I mean, they had all kinds of information. So the Bible says they came to the house of a harlot. And most of the time when you read the name Rahab in the Bible, including in the New Testament, along with her name is given her occupation. Now, she's not just Rahab. Most of the time, she's Rahab the harlot. And the fact that her name is repeated with that designation means God does not want us to forget who she was. There's a reason for it, okay? Repetition in the Bible is emphasis. And she's given this title even when the Bible is bragging on her. I mean, the Bible repeatedly brags about Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the whore, depending on which translation you're reading. Clearly, the Bible doesn't want to hide this. So why would the Bible keep telling us this fact, especially with all the glorious things that are going to happen to her? Well, it's because God wants to emphasize one single point that is the focus of our entire message today. And if you can wrap your brain around this truth, it can be a game changer. No matter how bad your past, God can use you in mighty ways if you'll just take a first step. No matter how bad your life is at this point in time, if you'll prove your faith by taking action, God will show up and do incredible things in your life. God doesn't want you to forget what he can do, even with those who are looked down upon by the average person. Jesus said in Matthew 17 20, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Just a tiny bit of faith demonstrated in a tiny step forward can move mountains. And that's what we're going to see in our story today. So Joshua, he sends these two spies to go and scout the land especially Jericho. But somehow they got discovered. Somebody saw them go in or come out, something like that, because it says in verse two, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. So they had been discovered in some form or fashion, which is not described for us here but what happens next is surprising. Verse four, but the woman Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. And then Rahab tells a lie. She says, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out and I don't know where they were going. Of course, she's lying because she's hiding them. And then she says, chase after them quickly and you can catch up with them but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. So she's hiding them and she's lying. Now that raises a theological question, doesn't it? When is it okay to lie? Right? When is it okay to lie? We know one of the 10 commandments is thou shalt not lie. somebody once said, I don't like lying, but it's a very present help in times of trouble. Well, here's the answer to this theological dilemma. You find this in Exodus 2, when the Hebrew midwives lied about the babies being born. You remember that? Pharaoh told the midwives to kill every Hebrew baby boy. So their only choice was lying or murder. And what do you do when you have two conflicting sins where either decision is sinful and you have to choose one because there's not a third option? In the case of the Hebrew midwives, what were the two sins? Lying or murder? And so they chose to lie to Pharaoh and that was the better choice. And the same thing's true here. I mean, they were going to kill the spies. When Anne Frank had hid the Jews during the Holocaust and the German soldiers came to her door and asked her, are you hiding any Jews? And she lied. Was that a righteous act, even though lying is a sin? Well, they were going to take him to exterminate them, to kill them. So you make the decision that will bring God the most glory. The principle is when either option is a sin, you have to decide how will God be glorified most? So that was Rahab's scenario. And she lies because she's hiding them. And then she comes up to them on the roof and starting in verse nine, she makes a powerful statement. She says this, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Notice that she has given out a bunch of critical information. The spies have come to search out the land, and Rahab says, Let me tell you how we feel about y'all, okay? We are scared to death. We're terrified because word's gotten out about you guys that you have this God who opens up the Red Sea and defeats his enemies and the hearts of our people have melted. There was a force outside of Jericho that was heading their way and their courage was melting like soft butter on a hot Texas afternoon. Folks, they were scared spitless of the enemy knocking on their door. Kind of reminds me of the story of a little three-year-old boy who accidentally spilled his fruit punch on the floor one evening. And this little guy decided to take the initiative and clean up the mess himself. But as he dashed to the back porch to get the mop, he suddenly realized it was dark outside. And he became apprehensive about reaching outside the door for the mop. And watching her son's dilemma, Mark's mother reminded him that Jesus is everywhere, even in the dark. So Mark stood there for a minute thinking. And finally, he stuck his face to the door and said, Jesus, if you're out there, will you hand me the mop? So Rahab gives the spies inside information about the atmosphere in Jericho regarding Israel. We're dealing with an apprehensive, scared group of people. But then she goes one step further at the end of verse 11. She says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Whoa, whoa. Now she expresses faith, personal faith in their God, who was not the God they worshiped in Jericho. Make no mistake about it, people. Rahab was a believer. She's put her faith, her trust in the God of Israel. So God leads them to the house of a believer who is a prostitute. Now, maybe I need to say that again because I didn't hear enough gasps in your living rooms out there. God leads them to the house of a believer who is a prostitute. Now that's better. Some of you may be squirming out there. The fact is that blows up a lot of theological systems, but God is not ashamed to spell it out in his word. So we have a bit of a conflict between her faith and her lifestyle, but you can't deny either one in the text here. She expresses her faith and she gives God's people key military information. And yet she has lied and she's still known as a harlot. Okay. Let's move on. She says to them, now, please swear to me by the Lord. She's calling their God, her God, the Lord, that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. She cuts a deal. She says, if I help you, you help me. If I protect you, you protect me because we're on the same side. We believe in the same Lord. Now we understand that her lifestyle is not exactly stellar right now, but we also understand that in the midst of that lifestyle, this woman has taken a whopping risk because if she's found out to be harboring spies who are out to destroy the land, then of course, her well-being will be in jeopardy. And don't miss this people. Rahab already had faith in God, but she was willing to demonstrate her faith, to back it up with her actions, her works. She was willing to take that first step and hide the spies. And because she was willing to take that first step, God showed up and did mighty things. And here's the lesson for us. No matter how bad your past, God can use you in mighty ways if you'll just take a first step. Even if your lifestyle is not where it ought to be, if you're willing to do righteously right where you are right now, then God's grace can meet you there. You say, but I have this addiction. I've been battling my whole life. I struggle with depression. My marriage is on the rocks. I've done too many things wrong in the past. God can never use me, forgive me. Hear me on this, people. No matter how bad your past, God can use you in mighty ways if you'll just take a first step. But if you believe the lie that you're not good enough, that you can't take that first step, that God won't meet you there, can never use you, if you believe that lie and just stay stuck, you will never ever know what God might do. Folks, just take that first step and see how God shows up. So God meets Rahab right where she is. God sends some people to help her out. So God leads the spies to her house for two reasons. One, ascertaining the military environment and two, saving the family of a believer in a pagan environment. So for both Rahab and the spies, it all worked out for good. And here's how it went down. Verse 15. She let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Boy, I love that verse. Because that means that when the walls of Jericho fall, her house and a piece of the wall is still standing. So only one piece of the wall left standing and that's her house. I mean, only God could do something like that. And then she tells them in verse 16, go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find him. She said to them, hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. Now this is pretty cool. Rahab taking that risky step not only saved her, it saved her whole family. Wow. Do you see the power of taking one little step? It can have a huge impact on those around you. Let's read on. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them away. So the two men went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all along the way, but did not find them. Then the men returned, came down from the hill country and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. And where did they get all that valuable information? From a harlot, a prostitute who God was using to advance his program. And this was somebody who was already open to God. I mean, Her faith, her trust was in the God of Israel, but it wasn't until she acted on her faith that she made a difference. I mean, she could have believed in the God of Israel and decided not to risk protecting the spies. And in that case, she would be in heaven one day, but she would have missed out on God using her in a mighty way. And she and her family would not have been saved from the Israelites attack. You know, James talks about this over in the New Testament. He uses Rahab as an example of why faith should be accompanied by works, by taking a step forward. And listen carefully to what James says, because this verse is so often misunderstood, but it makes total sense if you know this Old Testament story. James says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save them? In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Okay, James is talking here about a principle called justification by works. You know, we're used to thinking about justification by faith, but listen to me. There are two kinds of justification. There are two kinds of justification. First, there is justification by faith. That's when you trust Jesus as your personal Savior and your faith saves you for heaven. Your sins are forgiven, and your faith has saved you for heaven. But that's not the justification he's talking about in James. James is talking about justification by works. And this saves us not for heaven, but here on earth. Notice James says Rahab was justified by works when she received the spies, hid them, and then she sent them out in a way so they couldn't be found. She protected them. That's justification by works. Justification by faith is when you trust Christ to save you from hell. Justification by works is when you act on your faith here on earth for the well-being of God's plan and the good of others, which is exactly what Rahab did. She protected them and sent them out another way. That was her work. And what did her work do? Her work brought her salvation, deliverance here on earth. She was protected and her family was protected here on earth. So justification by faith takes you to heaven. Justification by works has to do with bringing heaven down to earth, being saved here on earth. And people, the only way God can use you in a mighty way is if you exercise your faith, if you take that first step forward. Too many of God's people have been justified by faith, but they're not being justified by works. They live their lives to go to heaven, but rarely can they talk about when heaven came down to them. Rarely do they see when God overrules a situation or circumstance for them. They don't experience God using them in mighty ways because they don't take an action step. Make no mistake about it. Rahab's justification by works was risky business, but it was righteous, risky business. And she was rewarded here on earth. Okay, let's move on. In chapter 3, it's time for Israel to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And this is what we read. Joshua started early the next morning and left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you are to break camp and follow it. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant is something that you read about regularly in the Old Testament. It was a chest, and inside of this chest were the Ten Commandments, some manna, the food that the people ate when they were wandering in the desert, the wilderness, and Aaron's staff. At the top of it was a gold plate with two cherubim angels, figures that were hovering over the chest. And the glory of God resided resided between the two cherubim that were hovering over what was called the mercy seat, the top of this chest. Okay. So the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And the principle here is simple. God is the one in charge. He is in the lead. You are to follow him. And then Joshua tells the people to consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Like Get ready, people. God is going to blow your minds tomorrow. And here's our principle again. If we take that first action step, God will show up in a mighty way. And in verse six, Joshua tells the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. The Lord spoke to Joshua, "'Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses.'" command the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hethites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. God is going to show you something amazing if you follow the Ark which must be in front. Why? Because that's God's presence. If you take that first step, God is going to do mighty things. And why is the Lord going to do this? Well, it says right here, first, so that you know he's alive. That's what verse 10 says. You shall know that the living God is among you. And second, you'll know that he is among you. It says the living God is among you because he could be alive over there when I need him to be alive right here. Joshua says, "Now you're going to know he's alive and you're going to know he's right in the middle of us. And that's going to prepare you for the challenge that's to come. Now, this is another reason you and I can't afford to just sit on our faith. We need to be justified by works. We need to take action to take that first step because only then can you see that God is alive and that God is right there in your midst. People, he's with you in your struggle. He's with you in your battle with alcohol or depression or porn or a broken marriage or loneliness. And knowing that God is right there with you, that'll give you the power and courage to keep going. Because you might be scared of what you're getting ready to run into. Okay, back to our story. Let's read on. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. When the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. Does that sound familiar? Kind of a replay of the Red Sea for a new generation, isn't it? You have two million people and there at the Jordan River. God's presence is up front. The priests, God's representatives are leading them. And God tells the priests to put their feet in the water. Why? God is waiting for us to take that first step. God needs to see faith in action. It's one thing to be justified by faith, to believe God can do something. It's another thing to be justified by works, to take that first step and put your feet in the rushing waters. And there's our principle again. God can use you in mighty ways if you'll just take a first step. He wants to see the faith backed by action to bring heaven down to earth. And as soon as the priests put their feet in the water, the moment they stepped in, heaven came down. Miles away, God dammed up the water and the water became a wall and held back any more flow. But look at verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge And the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass. And the people crossed opposite Jericho. The Bible wants you to know, God didn't just stop the Jordan. I mean, it was harvest season. So the banks were overflowing. In other words, this was a big miracle, not a little miracle. If it was surging, overflowing, and two million people crossed over, scholars believe it could have been one mile in width. That's pretty remarkable. And I love verse 17. The priest carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Wow. Okay, so you got a whole bunch of incredible stuff happening here, but nothing happens until the priests took that first step. But when they touched the water, God then created a wall miles upstream in order to block the water from flowing. And on top of that, he dried the ground. They came over on dry ground. No wheels were getting stuck. No people were getting stuck. Look, the ground's not supposed to be dry. This is wet ground. It's been under water. So God created dry ground. Why? So that you might know that the living God is among you. And why do you and I need to know this? So that you'll begin to trust him more and that'll allow you to experience him in ways that can only be explained by his presence. In other words, you'll know man didn't do this. You'll know this didn't come from human hands, just random circumstance. And the reason God does things like this occasionally, I mean, he didn't open a Red Sea or a Jordan River every day. This was strategically done. But the reason he does things like this is so that you will know that he is alive and that you will know he is alive for you. And boy, when you trust that, it'll prepare you for the next challenge and the next and the next. So people don't dismiss your Jordan moments and don't neglect putting your feet in the water when that's the divine instruction. Now, I don't know what it is for you this morning, but think about and pray about where you need to put your faith in action. Here's the place to start. What is your biggest struggle right now? Where are you stuck in your spiritual life? where do you need God to show up in a mighty way? Well, That's where you need to turn your faith into action. Might involve some risk. It did for Rahab, it did for the priests. But remember this, no matter how bad your past, God can use you in mighty ways if you'll just take a first step. Let's pray. I just want to encourage everyone listening right now, Please, take that first step so that you can see God alive and in your midst. Think about, pray about where you're stuck, what your challenge is, and then practice being justified by works, not just by faith. You say, well, I put my faith in Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. Don't you want to see the Holy Spirit, God's power here on earth working on your behalf? If so, no more excuses. Just trust. Trust that God can do this. Lord, we're coming before you right now, and we're going to believe that your power is as real and alive now as it was in the day of Joshua. And for whatever our challenge is, we commit to you to take that first step, and we ask that you would just show up in a mighty way, and work on our behalf and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.